Psalm 97. The Psalms are wonderful. The Psalms are in actuality a collection of Hebrew hymns. So the book of Psalms is a hymn book. So as you read these Psalms, it's important to remember that they were used in corporate worship. The people of Israel would actually take these words and sing them as songs of praise or lament. And they are varied. There are different authors, different themes, uh, different subjects. But there are some common denominators that we find throughout all 150 Psalms. I think Dr. Kendall easily gets it right when he says, God, here's the theme of the Psalms, God the true and glorious King is worthy of all praise and prayer, thanksgiving and confidence, whatever the occasion in personal or community life. And so the Psalms remind us over and over again that God is worthy of our trust and worthy of our praise in, in all circumstances. When times are good, God's worthy of our confidence. He's worthy of our praise. When times are difficult, He's worthy of our trust, worthy of our worship. And so we're reminded of that in these uh, pages. John Piper writes, The Psalms are songs, they are poems, they're written to awaken and express and shape the emotional life of God's people. Poetry and singing exist because God made us with emotions, not just thoughts. Our emotions are massively important. The Psalms are a reminder that God cares about our emotions because we find about every emotion you can think of within the pages of the Psalms. That's, that's why I like uh, the Psalms. They're not all, you know, pie in the sky. You see the psalmist dealing with some very difficult things like doubt and anxiety and depression and fear. And, and they're taking these different emotions, in addition to the good emotions, joy and delight, but th they're bringing these emotions to the Lord in reverence and saying, God, we know that whatever's going on in our life, we know you're the answer. And we can bring our emotions, bring our circumstances, bring our lives before your throne. So the Psalms really remind us to do that. And Psalm 97 is a wonderful companion to Psalm 97. Six. I've titled Psalm 97, All the Peoples See His Glory. And I'll show you as we walk through Psalm 97 why it's a good companion to Psalm 96. I had a couple folks come up after last week's teaching to ask me a specific question that Psalm 97 answers. And so we're going to talk about that together tonight as we think about all the peoples, all the ethnicities of the world seeing the glory of God. So let's read Psalm 97 and then I'll pray for us, and then we will uh, we'll jump right in. Psalm 97, verse 1. The Lord reigns, let the earth rejoice, let the many coastlands be glad. Clouds and thick darkness are all around Him. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of His throne. Fire goes before Him and burns up His adversaries all around. His lightnings light up the world. The earth sees and trembles. The mountains melt like wax before the Lord, before the Lord of all the earth. The heavens proclaim His righteousness. Now look at this next phrase where I got the title of the sermon tonight. And all the peoples see His glory. Now just as a reminder, when you see the word peoples in the Old Testament, it's uh, equivalent to the word nations in the New Testament. Uh, it, it's the word that stands for not geopolitical entities. When we think of nations, we think of like specific nations like Belgium or 
France or Iceland, I'm thinking of the World Cup, which starts tomorrow. Uh, Spain, Portugal, we think, of, we think of nations like that, Mexico, geopolitical entities. But the word translated peoples, the word translated nations in the New Testament is, is a word that really uh, encapsulates groups of people that are bound together, not by nationality, but people that are bound together by culture and language. So within any geopolitical entity like Uganda, you may have many people groups or peoples or nations, different languages, different cultures. They all live in Uganda, but the different groups are very different. They speak different languages, they have different backgrounds. And so the glory of God uh, is to go to all the people groups, uh, those, those groups of people bound together by language and culture, not just geopolitical entities. So it says, all the people see his glory. All worshipers of images are put to shame who make their boast in worthless idols. Worship him, all you gods. Zion hears and is glad, and the daughters of Judah rejoice because of your judgments, O Lord. For you, O Lord, are most high over all the earth. You are exalted far above all gods. O you who love the Lord, hate evil. He preserves the lives of his saints. He delivers them from the hand of the wicked. Light is sown for the righteous, or it could be translated, light dawns on the righteous which I think I like a little bit better, but it could go either way. Light is sown for the righteous and joy for the upright in heart. Rejoice in the Lord, O you righteous, and give thanks to his holy name. Let's pray together. Father, there's a lot here in this psalm, and I pray you'd give us grace as we study your word. Uh, give us, Lord, uh, understanding that we can understand the truths of Scripture and take them and apply them to our lives. So God, we're grateful that you're here with us tonight. Uh, Lord, we're studying the book that you're the author of, and this book is living. And I pray, God, that you would speak to us in a, in a very real, tangible way tonight. We'll thank you for that glory. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now, we don't know uh, who wrote this psalm, and we don't know any context related to this psalm, uh, we just get some insight into what the theme is by reading this psalm. But it is placed in the Psalter right behind Psalm 96. And it's placed in a section of psalms called the, the, the King Psalms or the Reigning Psalms because there's an emphasis on the Lord reigning, the Lord functioning as kings, uh, as, as a king. Uh, and if you remember Psalm 96, if you were here last week, we talked about uh, the, the call of God to make his name known to all the people groups on the face of the earth. We talked about going to the ends of the earth with the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. We studied Psalm 96, verse 3, uh, where it says, Declare his glory among the nations, his marvelous works among all the peoples. That's, that's what we're called to do. As I told you last week, you're either a goer, sender, or disobedient. Right? We talked about that. Uh, now, uh, after... Uh, that that uh, sermon last week, I had a couple folks come up and ask me a really perceptive question, really good question, that most people at some time in their um, journey have. And the question was, okay, you tell us to go to all the nations with the gospel. And, and if you remember last week, I said that there are people groups that are unreached and unengaged. In other words, they have little or no access to the gospel uh, millions and millions of people have never even heard the name of Jesus. So I had people come ask me afterwards, well, what about the person, you know, in a, in a tribe in the middle of the jungle that's never heard the gospel, never heard the name of Jesus? You know, what happens to them? 
Do, do, do they die and go to heaven because they've never heard? Are they accountable uh, because they've never even heard the gospel, never had a chance to respond? Do they die and go to heaven? Do they die and go to hell? What happens uh, with them? And, and it was a very perceptive question, good question, hard question. But Psalm 97 deals with this. It's a great follow-up to Psalm 96. So let me give you just two great truths from this psalm. Two great truths from this psalm that help us begin to answer some of these important questions when it comes to missions and missiology. Truth number one, God has made himself known. God has made himself known. Now the question is, how has God made himself known? Well, theologians categorize God's revelation under two categories. The first is that of special revelation. God has made himself known through special revelation. And and special revelation means that God has spoken specific words for people to hear and respond uh, to. And we would say the Bible is God's special revelation, where he spoke uh, to us through his word so that we can know who he is uh, and serve him and respond to him in worship. So, special revelation. Now, through special revelation, the Word of God, encapsulating that, we are reminded who He is. Now, look what it says in verse 1. The psalmist wants to remind us who God is, and that's this entire section of the psalms. The Lord, it says, the Lord reigns. Let the earth rejoice. Now, notice there that uh, the word Lord is all capital letters. Remember, I've taught you, if you see capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, That is the translation of the divine name. Sometimes you hear the divine name translated, or not translated, but pronounced Yahweh, Yahweh, uh, which is taking the four Hebrew consonants uh, that we see when the divine name is given in Scripture and making a guess at what the vowels are because the vowels weren't in the original Hebrew uh, Scriptures. And so some people think, well, when you see Y-H-W-H, the best way to pronounce the Lord's name is Yahweh. That's, that's one of the pronunciations. We don't know for sure, but when you hear Yahweh, you're hearing people trying to pronounce the word that's translated Lord here in our English Bibles. Now, whenever you see capital L, then lowercase o-r-d, that's a translation of the Hebrew word Adonai, which is the kind of the general word for Lord. Whenever you see capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, you're looking at the divine name of God. Okay, Yahweh. This name goes back to the name that God gave Moses at the burning bush. Remember when he was telling Moses, go to Pharaoh, say, let my people go. And Moses asked a really good question. Well, who should I tell them sent me? How am I going to have any credibility? And he said, tell them I am sent you because I am who I am. That's where that word Yahweh, uh, that, that name Yahweh comes from, Y-H-W, I am. It's a verb of being, a name of uh, being. And that's the name that God gives us of, him, of himself. He's revealed his name to us. And it's translated there, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. Now you might ask the question, why didn't the Bible just translate it Yahweh? Anybody have that question? Why wouldn't you just say Yahweh instead of Lord? The answer is because Yahweh is a guess. We don't know for sure. And Orthodox Jews uh, don't even try to pronounce the divine name of God. And they are um, offended when they hear people try to do that. And so if, if an Orthodox Jew who did not believe Jesus was the, was the Messiah, 
If they picked up an English translation of the Bible, like the one I use, and they saw Yahweh, 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 every time the divine name is in the Old Testament, they would slam it shut and say, I'm not reading that. They're trying to pronounce the divine name. No one knows how to pronounce it. Uh, and so, so capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D is the way the translators have said, uh, okay, this is a, an indicator that this is the divine name. All right? So notice here that the psalm starts off, the Lord, if you want to say Yahweh, the, the Lord reigns. That's the divine name of God. Now, why does that matter? What's the big deal? Well, have you ever heard somebody use the term God in a generic sense? It happens all the time in our culture. I believe in God, right? What does that even mean nowadays? When someone says, I believe in God. Uh, we need to be specific. And the psalmist here is being specific. He, he's not just saying, I believe in God, a general idea of God. He's saying, I believe in the God who has revealed himself as the God of Moses and Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Joseph, the God who ultimately reveals himself through the Messiah, Jesus Christ, the God who has spoken to us in his word. So he's very specific about who he's talking about. It's not generic God. He's not just kind of some spiritual person. That, I'm, a, I'm, 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 you know, I'm a spiritual person. He's saying, I believe in a specific God, the God who's told us his name, Yahweh or Lord. And so we're reminded who he is. God has made himself known. When we speak of God, we don't have to speak in a generic sense because God has let us know who he is. He's spoken to us, right? And, and we should uh, rejoice that we know who the one true God is. Secondly, in the special revelation, we're reminded that he reigns. Verse 1, he says, the Lord reigns. The Lord reigns. And, and just a reminder, in case you needed to hear it tonight, the Lord reigns. That means he calls the shots, he's in control, he's on his throne, he is the one who reigns. And you know, that's something that we would all amen and say, okay, Wade, yeah, the Lord reigns. But that... that doctrinal idea really should affect the way we live, shouldn't it? I mean, if we really believe that, that should shape our heart and our mind. Let me give you an example. There's a story about someone being comforted by this idea that God reigns. His name was, uh, let me see if I can get this right, Bulstrode Whitlock. He was an envoy of Oliver Cromwell, uh, English leader, to Sweden in 16... 53. So he was going to carry a message, an ambassador to Sweden. And he was resting at the village of Harwich the night before he was to sail to Sweden. And he was so distracted by the tumult going on in England during that time, and that was a very tumultuous time, that he couldn't sleep. And he was just restless. And he had a servant that was accompanying him, and the servant could tell that, that Whitlock could not sleep. And so here's what the servant said. Sir, may I ask you a question? Of course, said Whitlock. Pray, sir, do you think God governed the world very well before you came into it? <laughs> Whitlock said, certainly. And do you think he will govern it quite as well when you are gone out of it? Undoubtedly. Then pray, sir, excuse me, 
But do you not think that you may trust him to govern it quite as well while you are living? <laughs> Isn't that a good word? So, question. Did God reign okay before you were born? Is God going to still reign okay when you're gone? So, does it stand to reason that God's reigning okay right now? No, no matter what's going on in your life, He reigns. You can trust Him. So, so through special revelation, we know who God is. He's the one true God who revealed himself as the Lord to Abraham, to Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, Moses. He revealed himself through Jesus Christ, through his word. We know who he is. We know uh, that he reigns. We know that he calls the shots. He reigns. Now, why does, why does God, the one who reigns, why is the one true God, Yahweh, the Lord, why is he reigning? Well, because he made everything. The one who creates everything calls the shots. Amen. If you want to reign over a universe, we'll create one. And you can be the, you can be the boss, all right? You say, I can't do that. Exactly. That's the point. Only God can do that. He's the one that gets to call the shots. So he reigns. We're reminded of that from special revelation that our God is in control. Third, we're reminded how he reigns. How does God reign? How does he exercise his rule and authority? Because, you know, there are some folks in our world, in human history, that are in control, but they reign badly, right? How does God... What is that? What in the world? Am I hearing rap? Jason's going to take care of it for us. I'm assuming they probably turned it on in the gym and it's coming through our speakers. So everybody get a sip of water and... <laughs> yes, ma'am. Thank you, Jason. Are we good? Okay, good deal, good deal, yeah. All right, so uh, how does the Lord reign? Because there have been some, how do you recover from that? There have been some, uh, some of y'all, your heads was bobbing. Y'all are like, y'all are, y'all are feeling it. I like it. That's good. All right, that's good. Yeah, Psalms are kicking in, yeah. Uh, joyful noise. So we're reminded uh, how he reigns. How does God reign? Well, first of all, he reigns righteously. Look in verse 2 of Psalm of God's holiness. He is other than us. And you, you can't just go into God's presence um, without a mediator because he's holy and righteous and just. Uh, clouds and thick darkness are all around him. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of his throne. So notice there, righteousness is, is, is a part of his rule and reign. So God rules righteously. That means that he always rules the right way. He always does the right thing. He, listen, he always exercises his sovereignty or control rightly. That's pretty incredible. Because we have things that we're stewards of in this life, and, and we blow it all the time, don't we? But God always, always reigns righteously. Look what it says in verse 3. It goes on with this theme. Fire goes before him. That's a picture of his holiness. Burns up his adversaries all around. That's, that's his purifying fire. 
His lightnings light up the world. The earth sees and trembles. The mountains melt like wax before the Lord, before the Lord of all the earth. He speaks of his purity. God, God is pure. He's righteous. He always does the right thing. It says over in 1 John 1, 5, a very helpful verse, that God is light. Listen. In him there is no darkness at all. No darkness. He's light. All right? Secondly, the, the Lord reigns justly. Justly. Look in verse 2. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of his throne. There's much talk in our culture today about justice and fairness and equity and, and things being carried out in a just manner. And those are good and important conversations. But isn't it encouraging to remember that as God reigns, he reigns justly. He always renders the right verdict. He's always perfectly fair in accordance with his perfect nature. He always renders justly. He always reigns justly. He always does the right thing. Always. You can never, listen, you can never charge God with unfairness because he always does the right thing. Third, he reigns supremely. Look in verse 9 of Psalm 97. For you, O Lord, are most high over all the earth. You are exalted far above all gods. Now, you know Israel constantly dealt with the temptation to worship the gods of the nations around them, the false gods, the pagan gods. And the psalmist here is saying that our God is the one who reigns, who righteously reigns, justly reigns, and reigns over all. Your pagan gods are not gods at all, is what he's saying. They're not gods at all. Our God reigns. He reigns supremely. He reigns, it says there, over all the earth. And so that means there's none higher than God, none greater than God, none with more authority than God. He reigns supremely. The, the, the buck stops with him. Amen? The buck stops with him. He reigns supremely. So there are some things we learn about God through special revelation. Who he is, how he reigns, that he reigns. We, we learn these things from Scripture. We know these things about God from the pages of Scripture. But not only does God make himself known through special revelation, theologians also indicate that God makes himself known through general revelation. Now, what is general revelation? General revelation is God's revelation to all people at all times. Even to people that don't have a Bible, have never read the Bible, never heard the name of Jesus. There are some things that God has revealed about himself even to them. And, and that's why this is a good follow-up from Psalm 96. So what is general revelation all about? Well, first of all, to think about general revelation, think about creation. The creation praises God's name. And listen, if you'll get this, it'll change the way you look at the, the creation all, over, all around you. Look what it says there in verse 1. The Lord reigns, let the earth rejoice, let the many coastlands be glad. So speaking there of the, of the beaches, let the beaches be glad that God reigns. He's calling creation to recognize God's greatness. And that makes me want to go to the beach. Look in verse 4. His lightnings... Talking about thunder, lightning. Claire and I were out walking last night in our neighborhood, and, and there were kind of thunderstorms kind of all around us. 
uh, at a distance, and, and the sky was just lightening up. It says, his, his lightnings light up the world. The earth sees and trembles. So the earth, he says, is, is responding to God and his reign and his presence. Look what it says in verse 5. Uh, the mountains melt like wax before the Lord. In other words, mountains are big and strong, but they are nothing compared to the greatness of our God. Before the Lord of all the earth, the heavens, here it is, proclaim His righteousness. The heavens tell us something about God. And it says there, all the peoples see His glory. So the creation praises his name. This reminds me of Psalm 96. We talked about it last week, but I didn't, kind of, I didn't dwell on it. But look in Psalm 96, verse 11. Same thought. Let the heavens be glad. Let the earth rejoice. Let the sea roar. All that fills it. Let the field exult. Everything in it. Let, then all the trees of the forest sing for joy before the Lord. For he comes, for he comes to judge the earth. Here's the point. The created order points to him. And in that manner, it's giving him praise. It's, it's, it's giving him glory as the creator of everything. So when you look at creation, don't just say, well, isn't that beautiful? Isn't that nice? Look at creation as a, as a pointer to the God who made it. That, that's what it is. In fact, Psalm 19, I want you to turn to Psalm 19 because it's so important. Psalm 19, this is one of the key verses on general revelation. Psalm 19, verse 1. I love these verses. Now, he's going to talk, starting in verse 7, about special revelation, God revealing himself through his word. But before he talks about special revelation, he talks about general revelation. Look in verse 1. The heavens declare, the heavens declare the glory of God. The sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech. Night to night reveal knowledge. In other words, the, the creation is saying something about God. General revelation, all people, everywhere, have this revelation available to them. They might have the Bible, but they can ascertain that there is someone behind the created order. And so, we're reminded that creation praises His name. We're also reminded in Psalm 97 that all people, all people, everywhere... No matter the language, the, the ethnicity, the, the background, the nationality, all people are accountable to respond in worship. All people are accountable to respond in worship. Look in Psalm 97, verse 6. He says, The heavens proclaim His righteousness, and all the people see His glory. All worshipers of images are put to shame, who make their boast in worthless idols. Worship Him, all you gods. Now, that word gods is the Elohim, which could refer to the one true God, and it does in many contexts. It could refer to prominent leaders, uh, you know, uh, officials, uh, kings. Uh, but that's probably not how it's been used here. Probably this is almost kind of tongue-in-cheek as a way to say, you're worshiping all these false gods. All your gods bow to the one true God and should bow to the one true God. So this is his way of saying, if you're a worshiper of False gods bow to the true God. That's what he's saying. So his point here is this, that all people are accountable to respond in worship. God has made his glory known uh, to all peoples. Therefore, all peoples should worship him 
And the indication is, or implication, worship him alone. So all people are accountable to respond in worship. Even people that don't have the Bible, even people that never even heard the name of Jesus, they are accountable to, re- to worship the one true God. Now let me show you this in the New Testament. Turn to Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1. This really helps us to nail it down. Romans chapter 1. Verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness, now look at this next phrase, this is so important, suppress the truth. So he's talking about folks that have truth available and they don't respond to it, what do they do? Suppress it. Suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. How did God show it to them? Look in verse 20. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power, divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So here's what he's saying. Anybody anywhere should be able to go outside and look at the splendor of creation and say, there is a God behind this who must be incredible. Notice what it says there. Invisible attributes, his eternal power, divine nature. They should look at creation and be able to ascertain that in the things that have been made. So, so people should, should, should be able to walk outside, look at creation and say, there's a divine, powerful, awesome being behind all of this, and I want to know him. I want to worship him. But instead of worshiping him and seeking him, it says they suppress the truth. They suppress the truth. But notice how verse 20 ends. So, because God has made his, his attributes, his power, divine nature, known through the creation of the world, they are without excuse. They're without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. They became futile in their thinking. Watch this. Their foolish hearts were darkened, claiming to be wise. They became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal men and birds and animals and creeping things. It says in verse 25, they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator. So here's his point. Everyone everywhere has access to general revelation. God has created everything. And we should be able to see there's a God behind it, an awesome God, and we want to, to seek Him and know Him and worship Him. But instead of seeking the God they see in creation, they suppress the truth. And they turn inward and begin to worship the creation rather than the Creator. And they begin to worship false gods, and, and they are, their hearts are darkened against the truth. So God has revealed himself through creation, but let me just throw this in very quickly. Not only creation, but conscience. Uh, Turn to Romans 2 with me very quickly. It's another general revelation of God. Just kind of hang with me for a minute. I'm going to tie all this together in a moment. Look in uh, Romans 2, verse 15. He's speaking of the Gentiles. The Jews had the law. They had Ten Commandments. They had Moses, all of that. 
Gentiles didn't. They, didn't, they did not have the special revelation that the, the Israelites had. But look what it says there in verse 15. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. On that day, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. So here's what Paul's saying. Even though Gentiles don't have the law, they don't have the Ten Commandments, they still have this innate sense of there is right and there is wrong. That's called the conscience. Jews have a conscience. Gentiles have Everybody has a conscience. It's wired into us because we're made in the image of God. We are, we are made in the image of the moral lawgiver. Because there's a moral lawgiver, there's a moral law. And because we're made in his image, we all have this sense of right and wrong. Even though it's been marred by the fall, you know, we're sinners. But we still have this sense of right and wrong. I've heard people say before, well, some people believe that there's no such thing as absolute right, absolute wrong, absolute truth. They're moral relativists. They're professors that teach that. They, you go to a college and they say there's no such thing as absolute truth. Uh, I've heard that here's how you deal with that. You steal their car. <laughs> and right away. If there's no absolute truth, nothing wrong with me taking this car, is there? But you know what? Their conscience will bear witness there is truth. And they'll say, you can't do that. You can't take my car. That's not right. You know why? They have a con Everyone in this room has a conscience. Everyone on the face of the planet has a conscience. And it's an indicator that there's a moral lawgiver behind everything. That there's a God and he has standards. So God has revealed himself through creation and through conscience. So, Romans 1, they are without excuse. Now let me read you a quote from David Platt's book, Radical, where he deals with this idea of people being uh, without excuse. He says, suppose you were to ask me, what happens to the innocent guy in the middle of Africa who dies without ever hearing the gospel? Good question, right? My confident answer to you, based on the authority of God's word, would be, I believe he will undoubtedly go to heaven. There's no question in my mind. You might say, well, that's kind of weird. He goes on to say, the reality is the innocent guy in Africa will go to heaven because if he is innocent, then he has no need for a Savior to save him from his sin. As a result, he doesn't need the gospel. But there is a significant problem here, Platt writes. The innocent guy, listen, doesn't exist in Africa or anywhere else. He says, I'm always amazed at how we bias this question concerning people who have never heard about Jesus. We give the man in Africa or the woman in Asia or even ourselves in America far too much credit. There are no innocent people in the world just waiting to hear the gospel. Instead, there are people all over the world standing guilty before a holy God, and that is the very reason they need the gospel. Listen to me. Because of creation, because of conscience, because of, of general revelation, where God's made himself known to everybody everywhere, no one's innocent. Now, you might say, are you telling me that that person in the middle of a tribe in Africa, in the middle of the jungle that no missionaries ever made it to, there's no hope for them? That's not what I'm saying at all. Because here's what we see in Scripture. 
Back to Romans 1. If you respond to the light God gives you, God will give you more light. Eventually leading you to a place where you hear the gospel and can respond. Hear what I just said? If you respond to the light God's given you, God will give you more light. So if you're in that tribe, you look out at the stars and the sky and the moon hanging there on the horizon, and you say, wow, there's an awesome God behind this, and I want to know who that God is so I can worship Him. Then I believe God will give that person more light to give them more insight to the point where one day they will hear the good news about Jesus and can respond to Jesus in faith and be saved. And that's biblical because we find it in the case of Cornelius. Over in Acts chapter 10, Cornelius is a God-fearer. He's not saved, he's not a Christian, but he's seeking the true God. He's worshiping with the Jews, and though he wasn't a Jew, he was a Gentile or a Roman soldier, but he, he is, he's looking for truth. And he's saying, maybe this, this God of the Jews is the true God, and he's going to Jerusalem to worship, and he's seeking Him, but he doesn't know about Jesus yet. You know what God does? God gives him a dream, says, hey, send some men to, um, uh, to Joppa, and, and they'll come into contact with a man who'll come back with you and tell you the rest of the story. And while he's having that dream, Peter's on the roof of Simon the Tanner. He gets a dream about uh, God declaring things unclean, clean, which is an indicator, hey, you can go to the Gentiles with the good news. And he has this vision of the sheep with the animals in it. And, and uh, just about the time that uh, vision departs from Peter, there's a knock at the door, and there are these guys say, hey, we're coming from Cornelius, would you come with us and, and share your message with our, with our um, Lord? And so Peter goes from Joppa to where Cornelius lives, and he goes into the household, and he preaches the gospel, and Cornelius and his household get saved. What happened there? Cornelius responded to the light God gave him, God gave him more light. And eventually, he sent him the gospel. That makes sense? So, there's no one innocent in the world, but there is light that they can respond to. And if they do respond, God will graciously, I believe, give them more light. Now, let me just go and say on, the, on this end of things, for them to respond to the light God gives them, that takes the work of God in their hearts. I, th I believe God has to initiate that in their heart to, to give them the, even the opportunity to respond to that light. So God's working and drawing. But when they, when they feel the drawing of God and they respond to the light God gives them, seek the true God, God will give them more light. Everybody got that? All right. So, so that's what this passage is saying. Back in Psalm 97, Psalm is, Psalm is saying, Hey, listen, God has made His glory known, verse 6, uh, to all the peoples, all the people see His glory in the created order, in the fact that we have a conscience, and they're accountable to bow and worship that one true God. That's general revelation. Let me give you one more thought about this to kind of drive the point home. And I shared this last week with a couple of folks that asked. If people... that do not hear the gospel go directly to heaven because they never have a chance to respond to it, if that's, a, if that's a free ticket to heaven, the best thing Jesus could have done on the mountain before he ascended was not commission his disciples to go. He should have just killed them all right there to make sure no one hears this good news and everybody gets to go straight, straight to heaven, right? 
And that would have been the, that would have been the most loving thing to do. Just just silence, muzzle his disciples. They never say anything about Jesus. So the successive generations of nations never hear about never hear the gospel. They go directly to heaven under that mindset. No, Jesus, you've got to go and tell because people need to hear about me to be saved because of general revelation. So, first major truth, God has made himself known. Second great truth from this psalm, God's people are blessed to know him. It's a good thing to know God. Now, let me give you four quick statements and we'll be through. Four quick statements about knowing God. First statement, it's good to be in the truth. Look in verse 8. He's talking to all the nations. You need to bow before the one true God. But then there's a pivot in verse 8 where he begins to talk about his people that know him personally. Zion, that's the center of worship for Israel. Zion hears and is glad. The daughters of Judah rejoice because of your judgments, O Lord. For you, O Lord, are most high over all the earth. You are exalted far above all gods. O you who love the Lord hate evil. So he's speaking of those that trust in him. That trust in him and his redemptive promises. Those that are redeemed. Those that are saved. His people. And notice here, he's speaking of how good it is to know him. How good it is to have a relationship with him. It's good to be in the truth. Verse 8, he says, Zion hears truth about God and is glad. Daughters of Judah rejoice. So it's a good thing to be in the truth. Look at verse 11. Light is sown, or light dawns for the righteous. Light is a picture of truth or revelation. So those that are righteous, those that have been saved by God, those that belong to Him, truth dawns upon us. Truth is sown into our lives. We see the light. It's like the old Hank Williams song. I saw the light, I saw the light, right? It's a good song about what he's talking about here. He's saying, I saw the truth. I saw the truth. And so... It's good to be in the truth. There's a praise song that was out years ago. I'm trying to think of the name of it. Claire could help me. Um, I can sing your love forever. Yeah. Uh, but there's a line in that song that says, I'm happy to be in the truth and I will daily lift my hands and I will always sing of when your love came down. I always love that line. I'm happy to be in the truth. It's good to know you're in the truth, isn't it? It's good to know you're, you're, you're saved and, 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 and you're, you're building your life upon a foundation that will not be taken away by the wind and waves of life. You're on the one sure steady foundation. So it's good to be in the truth. Secondly, it's good to have a personal relationship with God. Look in verse 10. I love this verse. Oh, you who love the Lord, hate evil. Oh, you who love the Lord, personal relationship, folks that love the Lord, have a relationship with Him. It's, it's good to have a personal relationship with God. You see, walking with God means loving Him. And, and to love God fully, to love God wholeheartedly, you need to also hate some things. Here's what Charles Spurgeon writes. We cannot love God without hating that which He hates. We're not only to avoid evil and to refuse to countenance it, but we must be in arms against it and bear towards it a hearty indignation. So if you're going to love God, if you're going to walk with God, then there's some things you need to be against. Things that are evil, that are wrong, that are untrue. You need to, you need to hate evil. 
so that it does not contaminate your life and, and disrupt your fellowship or closeness with the Lord. Oh, you who love the Lord, hate evil. But the point of this is it's good to have a personal relationship with God. To love God and to be loved by God is a wonderful, wonderful thing. In fact, I would say there's no greater thing than knowing God. There's no greater privilege. There's no greater um, point to life. There's no greater meaning or purpose. Uh, there's nothing greater than knowing God and being known by God. Amen? Through Jesus Christ. Nothing. Third, it's good to know that He watches over His people. So when you're a child of God, here's the, the care God provides for you. Look in verse 10. Oh, you who love the Lord, hate evil. He preserves the lives of His saints. He delivers them from the hand of the wicked so God watches over His people. He preserves them, He keeps them, He protects them, He delivers them. That is the promise that we have. I love the quote of Lottie Moon. I think I've shared it many times with you through our journey in the Psalms. But uh, Lottie Moon said famously, said, I have a firm conviction that I'm immortal until my work on earth is done. That's good, isn't it? You're in God's hands. You belong to Him. And nothing can touch your life unless God allows it. And if He allows it, He has a purpose behind it. But you are immortal until your work on earth is done. Awesome thought. Comforting thought. It's good to know that He watches over His people. That, listen, there's never a time He doesn't watch over you. Often when I'm tucking my kids in night, I'll pray and I'll pray, God, I'm grateful that when we sleep at night, Psalm 120, you neither slumber nor sleep. You're always on the job. You're always watching over us. You're always providing and protecting us. I had a, a, a scary moment with the grill uh, a couple weeks ago, and, and, um, and I was turning it on, and what, the, the striker wasn't working and li like a dummy. I was looking over it, trying to, trying to, and all of a sudden, it, it just, woof. And listen to me. This is how close it got. Uh, when I went and got a shower that night, I could actually smell hair that had been singed on my face. It could have been a lot worse, right? And I was trying to get sympathy. I was like, Claire, I just almost died out there. And, but uh, she's like, have you finished the grilling? But, um, but you know, in a, even in a moment like that, my work on earth wasn't done. It could have been a lot worse, right? I was dumb, and it could have been a lot worse. But, but you know, we talked about in Psalm 91 about God protecting us. He even uses angels to protect us. And I was thinking about that particular moment. I, I just wonder that moment. Uh, angels, just here comes the flame and the angel going, and keeping it just far enough away where it didn't do serious damage. A scary moment. So we don't know all of those ways that God protects us, but we know that he protects us and we should be grateful for that. It's good to know that he watches over his people. Number four, it's good to know the joy of being rightly related to a holy God. It's good to know the joy of being rightly related to a holy God. Look in verse 11. Light is sown for the righteous, or light dawns upon the righteous, and joy for the upright in heart. Rejoice in the Lord, O you righteous, and give thanks to His holy name. So he's saying here, you should rejoice that you have a relationship with the one who's holy. You can know Him and love Him and walk with Him and talk with Him and worship Him and hear from Him. You should rejoice in that. Rejoice in the Lord. When was the last time 
you rejoiced in view of the fact that you have a personal relationship with a holy God. I'm going to talk about it Sunday morning. In Jesus, if you know Jesus Christ is your personal Lord and Savior, you can call this holy creator God, surrounded by thick clouds and burning fire, it says earlier in this psalm, you can call that God Father. Abba Father. We'll talk some more about that Sunday morning. Be back, all right? Commercial. Be back. But it's good to know the joy of being rightly related to a holy God. And here's, here's where the joy comes. The joy comes from knowing it's all grace. You don't deserve it. God's just been good to you and provided salvation through his son. And it's just good to be in the truth. It's good to know him. It's good to love him. It's good to know he's watching over us. It's good to have a relationship with a holy God that you're not worthy of. Grace should cause us to rejoice because hey here's the 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 reality uh we're all broken people amen? amen every one of us and our only hope is the saving sustaining work of the lord his blessings of salvation through his son jesus christ and he offers that blessing as a gift of grace amen we don't deserve it it's a gift of grace and so god's people are blessed to know him. So here's the, the, the basic theme or tenor of the psalm. God is great. He reigns. All the people should bow before him. And if you do bow before him and believe in him and serve him and live for him, if you belong to him, it's good. It's good to know him. So it's almost like he's calling all the people to say, come and experience what we experience. And, and shouldn't that be the the posture of this church. We have tasted and seen that the Lord is good. Amen? Amen. He's been good to us. So good. We, we could go around the room tonight and just have testimony time. You could just stand up and testify, all right? And we'd be here all night long because it, you all could share ways that God has shown His, his glory and goodness and, and provision and protection and, and grace and mercy, oh mercy, mercy in your life. We could all testify of his goodness, right? We've tasted and seen that the Lord is good. And, and, and our posture should be, we want others who are far from God to know him the way we know him. To experience the rejoicing that we experience. And they'll only experience that through Jesus. So let's go tell a lost and dying world that Jesus saves. I believe that's the tenor of Psalm 97.